0: Scripture, scripture reading, we'll be reading Ezekiel chapter 28. The word of the Lord came to me again, saying, Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, Thus says the Lord God, Because your heart is lifted up, and you say, I am a God, I sit in the seat, in the seat of gods, in the midst of the seas. Yet you are a man and not a God, though you set your heart as the heart of a God. Behold, you are wiser than Daniel. There is no secret that can be hidden from you. With your wisdom and your understanding, you have gained riches for yourselves and gathered gold and silver into your treasuries. By your great wisdom and trade, you have increased your riches and your heart is lifted up because of your riches. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have set your heart as the heart of a God, behold, therefore, I will bring strangers against you the most terrible of the nations, and they shall draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. They shall throw you down into the pit, and you shall die the death of the slain in the midst of the seas. Will you still say before him who slays you, I am a god, but you shall be a man and not a god. In the, in the hand of him who slays you, you shall die the death of the uncircumcised by the hand of aliens." For I have spoken, says the Lord God.
1: Good morning. It's certainly good to see everybody here today and as like to add my word of welcome and to all of our guests. We know that you are honored. Yes, and we want you to stick around and give us a chance to get to know you and let you know that here at Westside, our goal is to preach the New Testament church as established by Jesus Christ, and that we want all of our work to be towards helping to help souls to get into heaven, and everything we do in word, thought, and deed should be for that purpose. And so let's dig into our Bibles and read from God's Word, and if you have any questions about any scripture that is ever said, either by me or by anybody else, ask someone, either our preacher, or especially our preacher, since he's not here to defend himself, we will lay it all at his feet, or our deacons or our elders, ask the questions, encourage the conversation, because only through edification can we grow and learn, so I want to encourage that. I also want to add my word of thanks to the elders for giving me this opportunity and for Brother Sean as well for encouraging me and helping me to put this scripture together. Uh, I think I can safely say, despite what Brother Dennis said, that we are in no danger of being here
0: for an hour and a half, so...
1: Put your your mind at ease, but go ahead and buckle up anyway. So let's Uh, our topic today is about surrendering to God. And I want to thank Brother Day for his song choices this morning because they fit very well with uh, with that goal.
0: Batteries must be dead. So
1: my topic for this morning is realizing I'm not God, but then if I'm not God, then who am I? Who are we? Why are we here? How do we identify ourselves, and what is our purpose? And questions like this have been at the heart of philosophy pretty much since the beginning of mankind. And as we pass from the first generation of man and began to populate the earth, we begin to see more and more diverse takes on the purpose and role of mankind. Now, it didn't take long for a large part of the population to replace God with other false gods, as we read throughout the Old Testament, and then eventually, with the rise of the Roman Empire and into modern society, doing away with those gods altogether and simply elevating man to godhood. As we read in the book of Genesis, we know that we are made in God's image. We have a soul. We have the power of choice. We have the ability and desire to learn and increase our knowledge. We have the desire to shape, to mold, and to create. In the collective history of mankind, we've crossed many different achievements and milestones. We've gone from being a cave-dwelling species to a people who make towering structures of steel and glass. We fly through the air in great technological machines. We can communicate instantly with another human being on the other side of the planet. All using the same devices we use to watch cat and dog videos. The first man made objects are just now leaving our solar system and are recording the details of the vast expanses that lay beyond. We've developed many different systems of laws and governments. We've composed pieces of music, great masterpieces of such grandeur and beauty, all written by child prodigies and deaf men that just absolutely ensnare the senses. We've even tried our hand at creating life through means of cloning. And most recently of all, perhaps, mankind has decided that through sheer act of willpower some cosmetic surgery and maybe a little select chemistry that we can create our own gender. When viewed through the lens of mankind alone, it can be easy to see why some people might think that mankind is the pinnacle of intelligent life. This outlook would have you believe that we are the ultimate success story because after becoming a mathematical impossibility when those two molecules were at the right place at the right time, that we pulled ourselves up by the proverbial bootstraps as we stepped from that fateful pool of primordial ooze. The story of man is a tale of a constant desire for knowledge beyond our station. It's a story of our hunger for more in virtually every sense of the word. Nowhere, though, is this more evident than our desire for control. Society sees control as the key to our power. We live wherever we want, most of us. We choose our jobs, our dwellings, our possessions, and even the people that we associate with most of the time. In all ways, we seek to control our environment. If don't like the temperature, we adjust the thermostat. If you don't like the music, change the radio station. We place such a high value on control that the societal corollary states that the people who have mastered their finances, their career, and even their health have mastered their own faith. Truly, these people are gods, right? That's what society thinks. So then what happens when we run up against something that we can't control? The people that we work with, maybe, or our classmates. What about the weather for election year? Let's dive a little deeper, use an example that I think most of us can relate with, and that's drivers on the road. Now, I have a great many character defects that I struggle from but probably none greater than the expectations that I place on other drivers on the road around me. Does that sound familiar to anybody? If people don't drive exactly the way that I want them to, I at least want them to have the good sense to get out of my way, right? Does this sound like anybody you know? So how much control do I have, do any of us have, in those situations? Do these drivers know what my expectations of them are? And if they did... How likely do you think they are to follow that rigid set of standards that I've applied for them? Now, let's flip the script for a second, where where they have equally rigid expectations of me. How would I know? Would I care? None of us are mind readers. Now it's little situations like this that kind of help us to see that maybe we're not quite as omnipotent as society would have us believe. We can't control the thoughts or the actions of others or what they say, no more than we control the weather or the rising and setting of the sun. How many of these situations do we involve ourselves in where we have very little control over the outcome? Most of them, right? Worse, how do we behave when that outcome doesn't match our expectations? An unlikely wise man once said, you can't always get what you want. And if we look a little closer and meditate on it, the more we see that the truth of the situation is that it's less that we have control and more that we have the illusion of control. And as Christians, our sinful tendencies will often put us at odds with God. We desire to seek control wherever we can, removing God from our day-to-day lives. And what I want to do this morning is to compare and contrast some of the more different characteristics of someone who tries to take control of themselves versus someone who turns their cares and concerns over to the will of God. Now, for those who desire control for themselves, I think there are four main characteristics that tend to come to the fore. First, these individuals are often driven by pride. Next, they continually seek the easiest path in all their struggles. Third, they worry about all the things all the time. And then fourth, they're prone to unrighteous judgment towards others. When we're presented with similar situations, someone in surrender to God would answer pride with humility. They would answer the desire to seek the easiest path with the understanding that sometimes we must accept hardship as the pathway to peace. They would approach a situation of worrying instead with patience and understanding and thanksgiving, and address the judgment of others with acceptance and understanding. Let's go into each of the points in more detail. First, let's talk about pride. Now, it's worth pointing out that the pride that I'm talking about here isn't the pride that we feel after finishing a job well done, or the pride we feel with the accomplishments of our friends and loved ones. That kind of pride exists to recognize the value of hard work and as well as supporting those and uplifting those around us. Now, the pride that I'm talking about today is the pride that stems from self-righteousness or conceit. And this is the God, this is the pride that God hates because it is sinful behavior and is an obstacle to us seeking Him. We have often heard it said that pride is the downfall of man. And that phrase itself is actually a summary of Proverbs chapter 16, and verse 18, which states, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride in mankind is most evident when we t- make decisions for ourselves without the consideration of others. And in its rawest form, pride presumes excellence and glory that belong to the individual alone. When pride is talked about in the Bible, it's often figuratively spoken of with words that suggest Height or one who would raise themselves above all others. In the book of Romans, Paul warns us about the dangers of pride and arrogance. In Romans chapter 12, in Romans chapter 12 and verse 3, Paul says, For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt each one a measure of faith. In the New American Standard Version, instead of think soberly, it says to to have sound judgment. In this context, Paul is exhorting the Romans to hold themselves to God's standards, not to the standards of the world around them. Now, the Bible is full of examples that show that God is only too happy to humble the proud. Back in Proverbs 16, in verse 5, we read, Everyone proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord, and though they join forces, none will go unpunished. Maybe one of the greatest examples of this is Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. And if you want to turn to the book of Daniel, we'll be there in just a moment. Now, this probably isn't going to surprise a lot of you who study the Bible a lot because Babylon's history is pretty much synonymous with pride. Going all the way back to the days of Genesis chapter 11 when we read about the construction of the Tower of Babel and the Babylonians' desire to settle together and to make a name for themselves. This ran contrary to God's desire to spread out and fill the earth. And so, to prevent them from being able to finish the tower, God altered their speech so they couldn't communicate with one another, and thus they couldn't finish the tower. Now, later in the book of Daniel, we can read that Babylon somehow still manages to prosper as a nation, and that Nebuchadnezzar, at this point, was their ruler. In explaining the king's dream to him in chapter 2, Daniel chapter 2, Daniel points out just how blessed Nebuchadnezzar was. Starting in verse 37, he says, "'You, O king, are a king of kings.'" For the God of heaven has given you a power, a kingdom, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand, and has made you ruler over them all. Now in the moment, Nebuchadnezzar seemed pretty grateful, right? Especially for Daniel's interpretation. But by chapter 3, he had fashioned an idol out of gold and demanded that everyone worship it. Now, when Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego refused to worship, and he threw him into the furnace, he was surprised when all three companions exited the furnace unharmed. Nebuchadnezzar was in the moment again humbled, but it wouldn't be long before his pride again got the better of him. In chapter 4, in Daniel chapter 4, in verse 30, we read: The king spoke, saying, Is this not great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? No sooner had those words left Nebuchadnezzar's mouth than God struck him down. In verse 31, we read, While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. In that very hour, the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Now eventually, Nebuchadnezzar reverently worshipped God for the rest of his days, but that lesson was hard won. Nebuchadnezzar tried to take credit for the glory and the blessings that God had bestowed upon him. Continually, God brought him low to remind him of who gave him all those wonderful things in the first place. Let's talk about humility. When tempted in a situation by pride, we should turn instead to humility. For an excellent example of this, we need look no further than the tale of John the Baptist. Jesus himself said of John in Matthew chapter 11, "'Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there is not risen one greater than John the Baptist.'" When John's father, Zacharias, was approached by the angel in the beginning of the book of Luke, the angel said in verse 15, he will be great in the sight of the Lord. And from his birth, it's pretty evident that John was destined for great things. But by all accounts, John was a humble man. In John chapter 1, over in the book of John chapter 1, when the Pharisees were questioning John on his identity, he mentioned that he was neither Christ nor Elijah the prophet, but said, there is one before you, whom you do not know, and it is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to lose. John also knew that God was the author of his blessings. In the book of John, chapter 3, John, chapter 3, and verse 15, we read, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. And then a few verses later, in verse 30, he says, He must increase, but I must decrease. For he who comes from above is above all. He who is of earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What what made John such a great man was that he knew that humility stemmed from understanding who God was and who we are. And the more we understand God's power, the more humble it will be. Let's talk about taking the easy path. The second point of self-control is always looking for the easiest way out of things. It's in our nature to seek the path of least resistance, the shortest point from point A to point B. A popular phrase that we hear today is to work smart, not work hard, which can be an absolutely valid thing, but is often applied as justification for doing just the bare minimum or giving less than an honest effort. Now, seeking the shortest and easiest path isn't always a bad thing, but where we're concerned about is when taking the shortest or easiest path means leaving a job unfinished or achieving the ends is through less than honorable means. Now, in Jesus' sermons, he teaches at length about the importance of proper foundations. Over in Matthew, the book of Matthew, chapter 7, on the Sermon of the Mount. Matthew chapter 7 and verses 26 and 27, Jesus says. And to everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rains descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was the fall. Jesus didn't say everything that came beforehand in the chapter just for his own benefit. He was outlining what it took to walk in the pathway of duty. How to have a proper mindset, how to treat others, how we should worship. And it wasn't just enough to hear the words. We have to act on them. Like he said, if you, you know, someone who hears these words and does not act on them is a foolish man. If we don't follow any of his teachings or only follow some of them and not others, we won't receive the benefits of the kingdom. Half measures avail us nothing. Back in the first parable, the man that built his home on the sand said that he had the illusion of safety and security. And when elements beyond his control were introduced, that illusion was shattered and left only the harsh reality of his situation. Jonah, not our Jonah, Jonah tried to take the easy way out. When God told him to go preach the word to the people of Nineveh, Jonah promptly went in the opposite direction. He knew that Nineveh was among Israel's worst enemies, and he knew that traveling there and preaching God's words there was going to be a very difficult and maybe even useless process. And needless to say, after getting thrown off the boat and swallowed by the fish and deposited on the shore of Nineveh, that he really just should have gone there in the first place. And it turns out his efforts were not as in vain as he thought they would be. Abraham and Sarah, they were not beyond trying to take the easy way out. God promised them a child through which his offspring would be blessed. They were, however, unwilling to wait, and Sarah sent Abraham to her servant Hagar, To provide them with a child. Their desire to accomplish the ends now led them to circumvent their trust in God in order to make the blessings happen now. God did watch over and bless Hagar and Ishmael, but Ishmael was not the child of the covenant, which was made complete through the birth of Isaac. And once again, the lesson was hard won. Virtually everything that is good in life requires an investment. Doesn't matter how big or small the reward is, It's worth having requires an investment of desire, effort, time, or skill. Maybe all of those. Certainly, living a godly life requires all of these. First, we have to have the desire, we have to desire God's love and salvation, just like we must desire to make Jesus part of our day-to-day lives. We have to make effort to study and grow in the Word to Pray to God, sharing the worship, the worries, and the hopes and dreams that are within our hearts. And these efforts aren't just one-time decisions. Walking in God's life is a daily commitment. It is a journey taken over time, with a destination only being reached on the day of judgment. And last, skill is achieved through our growth and is exercised in worship styles and how we interact with others, especially those who aren't members of the church. Now, if you look at the list of heroes of faith in Hebrews, a lot of the people on that list had to be taught how to do things in God's way and in God's time before they answered the call to action. And I submit to you that the people on this list are heroes because they came to understand that sometimes working smart meant working hard. Let's talk about suffering as a pathway to peace. If there is one thing that I can drive home to you in this lesson, let it be this. If we do not learn how to navigate affliction, worries, and other kinds of suffering, we will never persevere as Christians. We live in a world today that is slowly but steadily becoming more hostile towards the Christian faith. And this isn't anything new. Christians have had to contend with this drive towards amorality since the beginning of the church. We've seen tax, excuse me, we've seen attacks on the, the nature of our creation, our family structure, our sexuality, and even how we're allowed to raise our own children. It's in these moments of adversity where we are tested and we can be renewed and edified. Heat and fire are used to temper and forge metal and to make it stronger. A very modern and unique example of this is the SR-71 Blackbird aircraft. It's known to be the fastest jet in the world, flying regularly at altitudes most aircraft can't touch. For the top speed of Mach 3, which is three times the speed of sound, for those of you who don't know, traveling at that speed, the aircraft would get so hot that some of the metal would actually retemper itself. Whereas most aircraft, as Dave would probably tell you, are prone to stress cracks over time, the Blackbird actually made itself stronger every time the airplane flew. Adversity and suffering can make us stronger too. We read in James chapter one. The book of James, chapter 1, verses 2 and 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. It is in times of trial that our faith is tested, and when we come out on the other side, our faith is reaffirmed. We do not grow or learn if we stay static. We have to be tested, pushed, and driven. Maybe one of the most prominent examples of staying the course through suffering in the Bible has to be the story of Job. The opening of the book of Job tells us that this man, he had it all. A steadfast faith, a large family, many possessions. And Satan was convinced that the only reason that Job was faithful to God was because he had so much. God told Satan that he could take all these things away and he would still see Job's faith in action. So Satan took everything, killed his children, took away his possessions, and even afflicted his health. Job responds to these situations like I think any of us would. He was greatly saddened and even cursed the day of his own birth. Still, Job's faith did not waver. In Job chapter chapter 1, and starting in verse 20, we read, Then Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground and worshipped, and he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin, nor charge God with wrong. Everyone from his wife to his best friends was calling for him to denounce God, and even calling him a sinner. Even in these moments, he still prayed to God. Now eventually, Job got his audience with God, and after being put in his place, God restored all that he had, and then added to it. Job came through his adversity better for it in the end. Let's talk about worry. Author Leo Buscaglia once said Worry never robs tomorrow of its sorrow, it only saps today of its joy. Anxiety, or worry, is one of the greatest motivators of the human psyche. Anxious responses can be almost universally unhealthy leading to headaches, sickness, muscle tension, lack of sleep, and ultimately bad judgment. Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 25 says, Anxiety in the heart of a man causes depression, but a good word makes it glad. Worry might be one of the most deeply rooted problems humanity faces, and we can tell this because in the Bible, instructions to fear not or be not afraid appear over a hundred times, at least in the King James Version. God clearly understood that this is something with which mankind would struggle with greatly. <clears throat> in Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 38, we read the tale of Jesus' visit to the home of Mary and Martha. And Martha's is so anxious, she goes about making a lot of preparations for her guest, while Mary sat at Jesus' feet and listened to him speak the word. We read in verse 40 she approaches Jesus and says, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. Now, Martha was overly concerned about making sure her home was clean and orderly. No doubt she was making meal or refreshment preparations. I think all of us probably would behave the same way if the Savior was going to come calling, right? Martha was so worried about the fact that the Savior had come to visit her that she lost sight of what was truly important in that moment. Jesus responded to her saying, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. Worry is a thing that happens when we try to assume responsibility for things that we can't control. Now God's solution in that situation is to pare it down to what matters most. Only one thing matters, Jesus said. Only one thing is needed. In the battle of Martha's panic versus Mary's faith, Joseph's Jesus chose to affirm Mary's faith. Worry as the great motivator can sometimes drive our thoughts and our actions. Part of the benefit of being made in the image of God is that with the soul, we can act beyond whatever our instinctual desires are. We have the power to examine our thoughts and separate the good from the bad. Our power of choice allows us to choose the thoughts on which we act. Are we in control of our thoughts? Are we letting our thoughts control us? Are we choosing to act on the thoughts that lead us towards God or towards Satan? In his first epistle, Peter reminds us of the importance of that situational awareness. In 1 Peter, the book of 1 Peter in chapter 5, starting in verse 8, he says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. By choosing not to act on worry and trusting in God as he has commanded us to do, we can avoid Satan and his temptations. Let's talk about thanksgiving. was not motivated by the upcoming holiday. When we're tempted to let worry consume us, it can drive us to unhealthy behaviors and attitudes. The way a Christian can counteract this is with an attitude of gratitude. It's difficult to be upset or worry when we're expressing thankfulness for the blessings that we have. When we're mindful of all that God has provided, it provides a new lens through which to see the day. Now, despite dealing with a king that regularly tortured and harmed his people, Daniel, as we talked about before, still found time to be thankful to God for the blessings and capabilities that he was given. Back in Daniel chapter 2, in Daniel chapter 2, verse 23, we read, I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and insight and have now made known to me what we asked of you. for You have made known to us the king's demands. Since Daniel's people were in subjugation to the Babylonians, Daniel might not have felt too inclined to help Nebuchadnezzar in this moment. Nebuchadnezzar had threatened to kill all his wise men if they didn't interpret the dream correctly, and he would later try to kill Daniel's friends when they didn't worship the golden idol. So even in these dark times, Daniel still found it important to express gratitude to God for his blessings. Even Jesus expressed gratitude, both while feeding the masses and again, During the meal of the Last Supper, Jesus gave thanks for the food. In Matthew chapter 15, excuse me, Matthew chapter 15, verse 36, we read, And he took the seven loaves and the fish, and he gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples, and the disciples gave to the multitude. Then over in Mark, in chapter 14 and 23, a verse we read quite frequently says, Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. Now, I think most of us would realize that the Last Supper in particular was probably not a very happy occasion. And yet, Jesus still gave thanks. In the book of John, in chapter 11, after Lazarus died, Jesus gave thanks for hearing his prayers, which he did as an example to those around him. In John chapter 11, 11, John chapter 11 and verse 41, we read, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me, but because the people who are standing by, I said this, they may believe that you sent me. Martha and Mary were both so worried about Lazarus' death, and it could have been, they repeated that, you know, had Jesus been there when Lazarus had died, that it could have been prevented. Jesus showed them the importance of having gratitude, even in some of the darkest times.
0: Let's talk about judgment.
1: Let's be very clear and upfront about this theme. It is not unrighteous judgment to discern someone with regard to their character or their teaching. The phrase, judge not that you shall be judged, is a phrase often applied by people who seek to misdirect from their own deeds to deny receiving judgment those who would recognize the sinful nature of their actions. When they apply the phrase, they're trying to say, you don't have the right to tell me I'm wrong. When Jesus said, judge not, he wasn't saying anything goes. Judges are a part of the modern judicial system and are a necessary part of a functioning lawful society. Before speaking what I think were probably, arguably some of his most famous words allowed in chapter 7, Jesus spends the two preceding chapters in his sermon setting the bar for discipleship very high. And immediately after he says those words, he goes on to talk about not casting pearls before swines or giving to dogs that which is sacred. And then only a few verses later, warns the disciples to be wary of false prophets, pointing out that they will know them by their fruits. We have to be able to discern good from bad. The judgment we're concerning ourselves about here is a judgment that is superficial, hypocritical, self-righteous, and even unforgiving. In Luke chapter 7, we hear the tale of Simon the Pharisee and the woman in the city. When Jesus enters Simon's house, the woman begins tending to him and worshiping him. She washes his feet with her tears and hair and then anoints him with oil, And when Simon points out to Jesus that that she is a sinner, Jesus tells him the tale of the two debtors and points out that her sins were forgiven. Starting in verse 41, we read, There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. When they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, You have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss. But this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. (coughs) For she loved much, but to whom little is given, the same loves little. Then he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves. Who is this who even forgives sins? And then he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Simon judged her solely based on her appearance, not understanding that his own spiritual plight was identical to hers. None of us are above reproach. When we judge others, it should be with the understanding that we too are sinners and will be judged accordingly. Now let's talk about understanding and acceptance. It is an unfortunate fact that we do not live in a Christian state. We most certainly don't live in a Christian nation. And if we discount our institutional and denominational brethren, we don't even live in a place where we are the majority. Yet, God calls upon us to obey the laws of the land and to live in harmony with the people around us. Certainly we've been set apart. We read in Romans chapter twelve, verse two. Romans chapter twelve, verse two. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. God is or Paul is telling us not to follow what those around us are doing if it doesn't follow the will of God. We know that majority rule isn't always the best rule. And just because our friends or family are doing it doesn't make it the right choice to make. I once had to choose worship service over seeing my family. I'm the only member of the church in my family. One of my family members was upset that I put God before my family. Being set apart isn't easy, but it is important. Despite being set apart, though, we still have to interact with non-Christians on a daily basis. Paul spends most of Romans 14 talking about how we can live in harmony with those around us who feel differently than we do on things, and he's not referring to spiritual matters, but rather lesser secondary concerns. He points out that for those who are in Christ, there are actions that are clearly right, such as acts of worship, setting ourselves aside in love, or serving others, or being in submission to the authorities. And there are clearly those actions that are wrong, such as sexual immorality, jealousy, drunkenness, and so on. What remains, though, are the practices that aren't really right or wrong for everybody, such as the food we eat or the holidays we observe and so on. We do not have to support things that are unrighteous or sinful in God's eyes, but we do have to exist shoulder to shoulder with people who don't have the same understanding as us. Certainly, we should serve as examples to those around us. We read in Matthew chapter 5, in verse 14, back on the Sermon on the Mount, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. When we proclaim ourselves as Christians, people will instantly begin to see us through that lens, and that's how they'll judge our actions. Furthermore, every interaction we have with a non-Christian is a chance to preach the Word. There are a lot of different ways to do this, and Peter calls on us to share the gospel with kindness and respect over in 1 Peter. The book of 1 Peter, in chapter 3, in verses 15 and 16, we read, "...but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. With meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good, your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. Now, he's kind of asking us to use a bit of verbal and mental judo here. The gist of Peter's words imply that we should let others be the one to bring the shame and guilt, not us. By setting a good example and following God's will for our lives, there's no need for us to walk around condemning others openly for their own shame. Their feelings about witnessing righteous behavior will generate that shame for themselves. Paul tells us in Timothy, or excuse me, Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2 in verses 24 through 26. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. We have to be patient and understanding with those around us. Just how we confront each sin when we're presented with the opportunity, that's subjective. I couldn't sit here and tell you how to approach every person with every personality. But we must do so with the understanding that the blessing of salvation is offered for all if they're willing to step from that pathway of sin. So then, if I'm not God, then who am I? I'm a citizen in God's kingdom. What does that mean exactly? First, it means that my ultimate nationality belongs to a kingdom that is not of this earth. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verses 3 to 5 says, Blessed be the God of our Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled. And that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Next means that I'm a servant. Jesus quickly established this as a key tenet for being a citizen in the kingdom of heaven. Mark chapter 10 and verse 45 says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. For many, having a servant's heart and sharing our blessings with others is the way that we can serve ourselves best. It also means that I'm a part of Christ's body. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and verse 13, it says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and all have been made to drink into one Spirit. Christ and the church form one body in the head as its members, It's a body united with one purpose, to stand on that day of judgment and to hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. I will now make you a ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. So how do we get there? After hearing the word and believing on him, we confess our sins and be baptized to wash away those sins, be raised to walk in newness of life. We put on the new man, and put away the old one and dedicate our lives to living in God's Word and sharing it with those around us in thought, word, and deed. We walk in humility, understanding our place in God's kingdom. We take the paths that God would have us travel, taking edification and reaffirmation from those struggles along the way. We have an attitude of thanksgiving, remembering that above all, the many ways that God has blessed us. And then we judge people fairly and appropriately, remembering that all will answer to God's judgment. It may be that we don't have power over a lot of things around us, but God did give us one very important power, and that's the power of choice. We can choose the path that we will take. We can choose to follow the path of the world, a world that doesn't care anything beyond the four walls of this life. Or we can choose to follow God, who offers us the blessings of eternal life and wealth beyond measure, Maybe you've already made that decision but are struggling with the trials of this world and need the help of your brethren to get back on your feet. In other case, we stand ready to help. If you've not yet been baptized, the water's prepared for you, even now. If you have been baptized, your brethren are here to stand shoulder to shoulder with you that you do not have to face your struggles alone, whatever they might be. The paths to heaven and to hell are laid before us, and the reality is, whichever path we take, the choice we make... Both the choices of good, or excuse me, both choices are the choice of surrender. We can ultimately be in surrender to God, or we can be in surrender to Satan. Which path will you take? Decide for yourself as you stand and we say.